Tonight, straight from the source, complete chaos at the Capitol as even more Republicans are revolting against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who is now saying that they want to burn the House down or at least cause a shutdown. Plus, Ukraine's President Zelensky meeting with President Biden today and fighting a different battle, this one for more funding. And a real-life succession, what Rupert Murdoch's exit from the Fox empire could ultimately mean for the future of American politics. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. With the government set to shut down in just nine days from now, tonight House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sent his deeply fractured Republican caucus home for the rest of the week. Yes, you heard that right. They are leaving town without having done their job to actually fund the government. And right on cue, the White House is taking advantage of this. President Biden posting this, saying that the last time there was a government shutdown, 800,000 Americans were furloughed or worked without pay. But hey, enjoy your weekend. Just yesterday, Kevin McCarthy said he was going to keep those lawmakers in Washington for a rare weekend session so they could figure out a way to fund the government and get these spending bills passed that so far has proved elusive. But today, everything changed again. McCarthy was dealt another black eye when one of his, when several of his members actually voted down their own defense bill for the second time just this week, leaving McCarthy clearly frustrated. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. There were no F-bombs this time, at least none that we could hear, but the frustration was clear throughout his entire party. We're dysfunctional. It's just that simple. That simple. We are that we are so dysfunctional. Uh, you know, we've got we've got nobody at the head. Uh, you know, I've said this, this train's left the station. It's frustrating because uh, you're going you're gonna to hurt our defense, and they don't have a rational explanation. This is absurd. I am not going to be party to a shutdown. The dysfunction could not have been clearer than when Republicans were voting against their own bill. This is a bill to fund the Pentagon. A no vote on a to debate a bill is basically voting against your own leadership. It rarely happens. And just for context on how rare that is, in the last 28 years, the House has only failed to pass what is called a rule eight times. So far, in only eight months since he's been Speaker, McCarthy has now lost three of those votes. Two happening just this week. Let's get straight to the source tonight with Republican Congressman Tim Burchett from Tennessee. Congressman, you are still on Capitol Hill, but everyone else is uh, obviously going home today. Why is the House going home without any of this being resolved? Well, actually, uh, they sent another. They told us we're in the Whips meeting, Whips office this uh, this afternoon that to stay. So a lot of people have turned around and are coming back. Um, I'm not leaving. We've got work to do. I think it, it really sets a bad example to the American public that that in fact, you know, we, we, we work these massive two-hour days up here in Washington since I've been here five years. We'll take a couple hours for breakfast, for, for, for lunch. We'll cater in a pizza or something and then call it an early day. You know, people in East Tennessee, ma'am, we've got, we've got teachers, single moms, beauticians, uh, lawyers, policemen, firemen, people that actually work for a living. Uh, that just can't believe this and the amount of money we're paid. So yeah, I, it's very dysfunctional right now, but we're, most of us are back and I understand that um, appropriations is meeting in the morning and I would hope that they would make it an early morning. So do you think anything will actually get done in the next few days? Yes, ma'am, we actually, um, we got some, got some relief in the WHIPS meeting. Um, my colleague, uh, Matt Gates from Florida actually, um, 
is really working very hard on an issue. Um, and, and the problem we've had is these single is voting on single issue bills. You know, they put these these CRs, continued resolutions, and then we say we're going to pass a continued resolution for 30 days. And, uh, and we need to pass this continued resolution so we can get off uh, continued resolutions the next time. Well, that's like telling a, a heroin addict, we're gonna get you off heroin by giving you more heroin. It just doesn't work. And then they pass what's called an omnibus bill right up close to Christmas. This has been historically under Speaker Pelosi and it's, and it's worked very well for her. But I don't like passing, as she says, passing something so you know what's in it. And that's exactly what an omnibus bill is. It'll be, say, 2,000 pages, and you'll well, read down to your to you find yeah, funding for something bill. in your but district, and then you stop voting. What, yeah, go ahead. what you're talking about here and what the arguments have been about between you and your, your colleagues over not agreeing on this is really just a messaging bill. Because the spending cuts that Republicans are fighting over so furiously have no chance of actually getting passed through the Senate. So what is the ultimate plan here? I mean, you're working well, I, to pass something yes, that won't actually I, go anywhere. I would flip that on you and say what the Senate is working on has no chance of passing in the House. I mean, we're supposed to be equal bodies, and I, I just don't buy that that rationale, ma'am. Um, we, we should be, uh, well, there's 435 of us, and granted, we have our differences, but uh, we are uh, one of the three branches of government. And so I would hope that, that in the future people would, would see that. I, I mean, that's a pretty common knowledge thing, but, but still I understand what you're saying, that they're not gonna pass what we, we want. But when you negotiate, say for instance, um, I passed the speed limit in, in Tennessee, raised the speed limit. Steve Cohen and I, of all people, uh, passed the speed limit in Tennessee. We asked for 85 and we took 70. You know, in the beginning they were asking for a 1% cut. Like that's going to do anything when we've just passed the $33 trillion mark of debt that we just continue to run up. And we do that by passing these continued resolutions. Now, though, we're going to be able to vote on individual appropriations. And, um, and, and lo and behold, today they said we'll vote on four of them. So okay, I think that's a great you, start. Even if you vote on those individual bills, I mean, are you going to be able to get all of that done? to the Senate, have them send it back to you with their changes. Obviously, as you were noting, it's a negotiation here, but is that going to be able to be done by next Sunday or do you think the government is going to shut down here? Well, why not? You know, 24 hours in a day and we work about four of them up here. And then we uh, walk out in our Brooks Brothers suits with our coats over our shoulders and our sleeves rolled up, telling the American public that we've actually worked when in reality, they know we haven't. So. I would submit to you, let's work over the weekend. I'm here. The majority of us are here. But are here. you saying let's, that let's to other to Republicans? Work. Because, I mean, it doesn't, yes, I'm not a member of Congress. Are you saying that to, to Speaker McCarthy yes, that everyone I, absolutely. should be I, I mean, I tweeted about it. Um, I have 90, over 95,000 um, followers at, at Tim Burchett. So, uh, and the other members are saying that just as well. And I made that, we made that very clear in the WIP meeting with, um, with, with Whip Emmert this afternoon and Guy Riesenthaler. Um, his number two man. So I think leadership understands that and they understand our frustration. So yes, okay. ma'am, I would say that's a valid valid point and, they, and it's, it's been taken by leadership. I'll just say I'm a little skeptical because we had Mike Johnson on here last night. He said the hardliners were in agreement. Clearly they, they were not. So we're just a he bit skeptical wrong. of any agreements. Uh, I do want to ask you, former President Donald Trump is weighing in on this. He is saying that there should be a shutdown. He is not in favor of a short-term <laughs> bill and says that you and your colleagues should not support it, apparently believing that it will halt the special counsel's prosecutions. I mean, but do you think he understands that a shutdown does not do that? It does not stop Jack Smith's investigations and ongoing prosecutions? 
No, ma'am, you have to do a specific um, um, amendment to, uh, to the bill to, to do that, to do uh, the Holman rule, I believe it's called. And it is where you take a specific line item and you can literally flatten out an office, which is used for people that have been in there too long and that are abusive. And, um, you know, I, I've heard this. The only people I've heard it from, oddly enough, are reporters today. I was with the president, I guess, a little over a month ago, and he never, of course, he never brought it up then. But I have not heard from him, him uh, since then about that. So I, I have no earthly but, idea if that's what his plan is. Well, but he it's, posted it's not that, but you agree. Plan. Yeah, you agree. Okay. Like, this has, a shutdown has nothing to do with Jack Smith's investigation. No, ma'am, I don't believe it does. It has to be specific. So I would watch this specific amendment to the bill to yeah. do just that. One focus of all of this, and we heard how <clears throat> frustrated Speaker McCarthy was earlier saying that those hardliners want to burn the house down as he framed it. Do you believe he emerges from this with his job intact? I don't know, but I think that's a poor choice of words. Uh, we don't want to burn the house down. We just want us to be fiscally sound. That's what we ran for. That's why I believe we, we received a very slim majority because we didn't push that out to the American public, just how just the billions and billions of dollars that we're wasting. I mean, daily, uh, we sent 140, almost $140 billion to Ukraine unchecked, and then the poor people in Maui can't even get anything. And uh, the people in Pennsylvania, after the chemical spill, they're still waiting. And um, I just think our priorities out of whack. And now I understand if we shut Do down the Ukraine, him said as that. Speaker, I have my questions. I have my doubts right now because uh, I'm seeing uh, we need leadership, ma'am. We don't need someone just to say we got 218 votes or whatever that jumps on the train after it leaves the station. Uh, we need some people. Um, Speaker Pelosi, for instance, I'll give you a you know I I don't agree with her ever, hardly on anything, but. She, uh, she was pretty successful in her, and, and the way she did it was, she put an issue out amongst her caucus, she met with them, she got a, uh, uh, she figured out what they wanted, mm -hmm. and then they put it on the floor and they passed it, and they rallied around it. A lot of work goes into that, but we're not seeing that, I'm not seeing that work right now. And, um, and it's very disappointing to me. A rare compliment we, from a Republican for former no, Speaker Pelosi. She's a friend of mine. I mean, she has a granddaughter named Isabella, and I have a daughter named Isabel. And uh, my daughter got hurt real bad last year on a horse, which she actually won world championship in her division. And Speaker Pelosi is always asking me about her. So, yeah. I'd love to hear I, that. And we hope that your daughter is recovering well. Congressman, you got a lot going on. Thank you, Tim Burchett, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me on, ma'am. It's been a pleasure, as always. And I'm joined now by New York Times senior political correspondent Maggie Haberman and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Alyssa, you not only worked in the Trump White House, you also worked on Capitol Hill during a time of um, what well, some would say chaos when the Freedom Caucus was uh, getting rid of Speaker Boehner. Have you ever seen anything like what we're seeing play out right now? Well, for some historic context, I was there one of the times a rule vote was taken down by the old uh, the Republican <laughs> so Party. It was on yeah, the TPA vote. Listen, um, this is an existential threat to Kevin McCarthy. And I think you asked the key question, though, at the end is, could anyone other than him get 218? Now, a couple of things to look at here. These fights from the right, and I know these guys very well, tend to be kind of veiled as fiscal fights. This is about addressing deficits and budgets. 
I'm sorry, but I worked in the Trump administration. We spent as much as most Democratic administrations do. Oftentimes, it's something a bit more partisan that they're working to do, defund the select council or the, the Jack Smith investigation. I suspect what will ultimately end this, if anything does, will be some si kind of a concession on the more political side, whether it has to do with more investigations, it's empowering something on the oversight committee. I think for a handful of members like this gentleman, it really is about spending. But for those driving it like a Gates, I don't think that's ultimately what it is. And frankly... I don't know that anyone can get 218, but Kevin McCarthy probably has the best chance at holding on to it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, what do you make of, Maggie, Trump getting involved in this, weighing in late last night, saying Republicans should not pass this short-term bill, which Kevin McCarthy and them were trying to get Republicans behind. I mean, he, he has this hope that it would affect his investigations, but as the congressman made clear, it, it would not. No, it's not going to. And, and I think, realistically, Donald Trump has been told that uh, by advisors. I think he is aware that this is the case. He has repeatedly done things that make life a little more complicated for Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, at various points, has done things that have upset uh, pres former President Trump, including not endorsing him, which we're aware of. And so I don't think it's a surprise that he is twisting the knife here. I think that, you you know, Trump is much more aligned with these members who, as Alyssa correctly says, are talking about fiscal responsibility. And, and some of them clearly believe it, but many of them are, are talking about other things. And, and this is this is a little different from some of the early days of, say, the Tea Party, when that first wave came in, when it really was much more about spending. It yeah. has now become about all kinds of other things. Uh, and Trump cares about all kinds of other things. Spending is sort of theoretical. Yeah, it's certainly not. He's not, you know, obsessed he's with He's not a fiscal conservative, shall we say. <laughs> um, but the, what was remarkable today and kind of encapsulated for people who are, you know, it's always chaotic on Capitol Hill, watching Republicans vote down their own defense spending bill for the second time. We spoke with Chairman Michael McCall earlier this week on the show. He said in his 20 years he's never even seen that happen once. Well, and then keep in mind as well, in the Senate, you've got Tommy Tuberville ba uh, blocking Pentagon promotions. I mean, the Republican Party, my party, is quickly wading into looking like the anti-defense party purely because of these political uh, fights that are happening on the Hill. But also, by the way, government funding is one thing. FAA reauthorization is coming up. Farm bill reauthorization is coming up next week. And by the way, if Republicans shut down the government, their own impeachment inquiry, which is supposed to launch next week, won't be able to happen. So that's the one thing that makes me think the government yeah. might actually stay open. All of this is happening while we're also watching, you know, the broader 2024 field. We heard from Nikki Haley today, who is doing better in polls, at least in some of our New Hampshire polls. She's in that race for second for second place. She obviously worked for Trump and was commenting on him today. And she said this about his legacy. He was the right president at the right time. He used to be good on foreign policy, and now he has started to walk it back and get weak in the knees when it comes to Ukraine. He was thin-skinned and easily distracted. Well, some things are true there, and some were not. That what she said about how he used to be strong about Ukraine, I that was a different period of time that I witnessed anyway during the impeachment battle, the first impeachment battle, uh, which was about Trump trying to withhold congressionally approved military aid to Ukraine. But in terms of that he is thin-skinned, I don't think that anybody is taking issue with that characterization. I do think that you are seeing Nikki Haley carve out a pretty interesting space of separation from Donald Trump. And you are correct that she is moving not just in New Hampshire, but in other states as well. The campaigns are all talking about it as well, that she is a, she is a, a threat to DeSantis, but she's a threat to anybody else in the non-Trump lane. And she is, look, she has a delicate line to walk because she did serve him, because she did defend yeah. him any number of times. Um, I, I think one of the things that is complicating for a lot of the folks in this current field who have praised Trump at various points, some of them still very much so, like Vivek Ramaswamy, um, 
is trying to reconcile for voters what has, is different. But Caitlin, Donald Trump is not a different Donald Trump. And I think that's one of the things that, that is, um, sounds inauthentic when these candidates are saying it. Yeah. Maggie Haberman, Alyssa Griffin, thank you both for joining me on set. Ukraine's president got a mixed reception on Capitol Hill today, perhaps a taste of what it would be like if Donald Trump returns to power as Republicans in the House are turning their backs on more aid for his war. Plus, a surprise announcement from one of the most powerful people in the media world, Rupert Murdoch retiring. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was in Washington today pleading for more help as his country is still facing an onslaught of new Russian attacks. The White House announced a new aid package to the tune of $325 million, but there was a stark difference in Zelensky's reception compared to his visit last year. This time, there were no cheering crowds or waving Ukrainian flags or a joint session of Congress for him to address. You can see on the right, he was just escorted through the halls by Senator Schumer and Senator McConnell. This could be a potential foreshadowing of what's to come if Donald Trump is reelected and Republican skepticism of funding his war continues to grow. Here with me now, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Senator, so glad that you are joining me tonight. You were Thanks, in that Caitlin. closed door meeting with President Zelensky today. What was the most important thing that you heard from him? Well, the passion, uh, the incredible work that he is doing to protect democracy, not just in Ukraine, but across the world. And let me tell you, there was there were two standing ovations for him, Caitlin. It, the crowd was nearly all the senators, Democrats and Republicans were there. I did not detect that gnawing away of support. I see a Senate that passed with 86 of 100 senators voting for the defense bill. I see Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer standing together for Ukraine. And then later this afternoon, uh, at the archives where no loss symbolism there, where he's where the Constitution Declaration of Independence, you see President Zelensky declaring that Ukrainians are defending freedom and global security every day and every night. And kids are there and soldiers without legs, children without hands, and the American doctors that have fixed them, that have made their lives better, that have given them prosthetics. It was very emotional. People were crying. And I saw every bit of emotion that I saw in the past. In fact, stronger resolve, as we know China is watching right now. We know that this scrappy Ukrainian military has taken back 50% of what this superpower Russia took away from them since the invasion began. So I see momentum and I see just uh, incredible, incredible, um, strong spirit in President yeah. Zelensky that has guided his country through this. And we see we see much more support for Ukraine from the Senate. I mean, you saw Senator McConnell today walking with Senator Schumer and President Zelensky. But on the House side, I mean, it's a different story. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, you know, he avoided being seen in public with Zelensky. We did see these photos of them together in private. But, you know, he's not committing to putting more aid for Ukraine up for a vote in the House. Obviously, that would you know, the, how the Senate would deal with that is, a, is an open question. Do you think that Congress is going to be able to get another aid package for Ukraine passed? I do. I think you know that, as you just discussed on your panel there, that Speaker McCarthy has a lot going on. <laughs> and uh, he did say after the meeting, I heard the reports that he heard some good things there. And you've got 
a number of Republicans uh, over in the House standing with Ukraine. Yes, you have some people, but I would like to ask them to their faces, what do you think China's going to think if we withdraw? What are our allies going to think as they are stepping up aid, countries like Norway pledging billions and billions of dollars? This America leads, and America stands with their friends and their allies. Uh, that is what this is about. And to see this juxtaposed with Tommy Tuberville holding up hundreds and hundreds of military nominations as their families sit in limbo, it does make me wonder, whose side are you on here? And I can tell you that Democratic leadership is firmly on the side of our military, of our soldiers, and of democracy for America and across the world. Yeah. Senator, on another note, but before you go, I know this is something that's really important to you, given how last month we saw the White House announce which those first 10 drugs are that are going to be subject to the Medicare price negotiations. You are actually part of a brief in court right now over this issue. Do you think that you'll ultimately be successful here? I do. Um, basically, 20 years ago, for some reason, Congress agreed to pharma language that put in this sweetheart deal in writing that basically blocked negotiation on behalf of the nation's 50 million seniors for less expensive drugs. As a result, they're paying 250% more for drugs than other industrialized nations. It's crazy. Under the president's leadership, I've led this bill forever. We finally got it passed. First 10 drugs announced, things like Xarelto, things like Genuvia, uh, things like Eliquis. These drugs just last year, just last year, 9 million Americans forked out 3.4 billion, not million, billion dollars in out-of-pocket costs. So if this isn't a big deal, this is, as the president says, a big effing deal. So you've got 10 drugs out there first, next it's gonna be 15 more, then 15 more. You've got caps on the insulin at 35 a month for seniors, we wanna expand it. You've got out-of-pocket costs limited to $2,000 per year. Um, that you're going to see rolling out in 2025 under our legislation. And I can't wait to see President Biden make that point in a debate. Everyone talked about bringing down pharma costs. He is doing it, and it's Democrats in the Senate and the House that passed that bill. We've heard a lot of F-bombs dropped on Capitol Hill lately. Senator, thank you for censoring yours for us tonight. And I thank would you. always censor. <laughs> thank I you for joining us. I was only quoting the president. <laughs> well, thank that makes you. it okay. Thanks so much, Senator Klobuchar. See ya. And coming up next, he said he would never retire, but now Rupert Murdoch is doing just that, hanging up his hat, and he has picked his successor. The real-life succession tale may not necessarily be final. We'll tell you more next. Rupert Murdoch, the chief of perhaps the most influential media empire in the world, is now stepping down. The 92-year-old chairman of Fox and News Corps announced today that his older son, Lachlan Murdoch, will serve as the sole chairman of both companies. This news sent shockwaves across the media and political spectrum, though Murdoch did express confidence that his son would carry on the torch. He said in a memo, quote, Lachlan is absolutely committed to the cause. For more on the fallout and the future of Fox, I want to bring in Jim Rutenberg, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and writer-at-large for The New York Times. Jim, uh, did you see this coming? Uh, well, Rupert Murdoch is 92 years old, so to some degree, I saw this coming eventually. I did not see it coming this morning, so in that regard, it certainly was a surprise. Also, uh, Rupert Murdoch has always said he would leave his office feet first.
Yeah, he, he, he's talked about never retiring. And that's why I think part of this was surprising to people who follow him and watch him. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that this is coming, you know, five months after we saw that $787 million defamation settlement coming? I mean, they still have the Smartmatic lawsuit that Fox is dealing with, in addition to what they saw with Dominion. Is any of this a factor in why he's stepping down now? I have had no indication, and none of our reporting is showing, per se, that Dominion was a factor. Obviously, that was an awful moment for the company. Uh, The lawsuit, obviously, the coverage that got them into that trouble. Uh, And there is a pending lawsuit, but his decision to retire uh, will not affect the lawsuit in that Rupert Murdoch will still would still have to testify. He still was in charge. So it doesn't get him out of any future legal issues that are still pending for the company. I think him putting his oldest son, Lachlan Murdoch, in charge here, there are questions about what does the future of Fox look like? I mean, he is someone who's criticized Trump in the past. You know, he told people that Trump running again, he believed would be bad for the country. They fired Tucker Carlson, of course, uh, not too long ago. Uh, what do you, What is the future of Fox for people who are wondering, would this change tonight? I mean, right now, I would not expect change. So far, uh, all indications are that Lachlan uh, Murdoch believes in continuity. He's, he's always defended the position of the network writ large. Now, but there's one thing that I am very interested in seeing after covering this company and this family for 20 years is that Lachlan Murdoch has never been running the company outside of his father's shadow. And while his father will still be around in an emeritus fashion, this is now, for now at least, Lachlan Murdoch's company. So it's his chance to put a stamp on it. And I, for one, am very eager to see what that will look like. And obviously, given the influence of the company, it's it's more than just mere curiosity. It's, it will be very important in terms of American politics. You said for now, at least. What do you what's your speculation on on the timing and what this could look like and how long he could be there? Well, there's this show on HBO called Succession. Um, <laughs> there is a uh, that there's a looming succession battle within the family in that Rupert Murdoch long ago set some terms uh, dealing with the day he dies. And when he dies, he said it would be up to his four eldest children to duke it out amongst themselves in terms of who's going to be in control of the company going forward. He, Rupert, has clearly put his thumb on the scale for Lachlan. Lachlan has the job right now. This solidifies the companies. There are many, and two in particular that matter the most, under Lachlan. However, there could be a fight with his other siblings. His brother James, who's now uh, outside the company, has, has been seen as, a, as someone who may rally his two other siblings, two sisters, to outvote Lachlan should that day come to pass. Lachlan, uh, Rupert Murdoch is 92. It should be said that his mother, Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, died uh, shortly before her 104th birthday. Yeah. What else are you going to be watching here? I mean, what is the biggest impact that this is going to have, do you believe? Well, I'm going to be watching what it means, for one, in terms of 2024. Uh, Will Lachlan Murdoch play the out front role that his father played in American politics and in global politics? Uh, You mentioned uh, just a a minute ago that Lachlan had his qualms about President Trump, uh, former President Trump, Uh, But former President Trump is still very popular with the Fox base. So if they stay true to form under Lachlan, that the network will go where the ratings are. 
But will Lachlan do something different? Will he take the company in a different direction? Again, not expected, but we don't know what that's going to look like. And again, to me, that's a, a huge question that's about more than this company. Yeah, major questions. Jim Rutenberg, thank you for covering it and joining us tonight. Thanks so much. President Biden, meanwhile, sending hundreds more troops to the border as migrants there are overwhelming the Texas town of Eagle Pass tonight. There are the stunning scenes playing out. Little children crawling through razor wire. The former Homeland Security Secretary will talk to us next about the crisis. What could the solutions be? That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, up to 800 active duty troops are headed to the southern border as the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, has now declared a state of emergency. Thousands of migrants have been attempting to cross the Rio Grande, a journey that is so risky a three-year-old has drowned. A source tells CNN that some 3,000 migrants crossed into the U.S. near Eagle Pass just on Wednesday alone. The mayor is clearly frustrated tonight and also calling out President Biden. I believe 100% he does bear some responsibility uh, for this crisis. Nobody has bothered to call me, anyone in the city staff, saying, hey, this is the federal government. We know what you're going through. We're worried about you. This is our plan of action. Nothing. I should note, even thick razor wire that's along the border has not been deterring people from crossing. These people who are desperately fleeing poverty and persecution. Families are even threatening their small children, as you can see here, through the tangled wires. Joining me now for this crisis, joining me now on this crisis, I should note, is the former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama, Jay Johnson. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here. I want to talk about what are the potential solutions to fix this, how you would handle this. But when you hear that news, that a three-year-old was killed making this journey, I mean, what goes through your mind? First, Caitlin, I think it's important to remember that the people at the center of this storm, the migrants, are almost all helpless, harmless people who are desperate for a better life in, in America. They live in the most impoverished, violent regions of our, 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 our planet and are desperate to get here, even if it means making a dangerous journey like the one you, you just described. So uh, the administration, the Biden administration in May, got a break. Uh, they were very effective in delivering a message that there's a right way and a wrong way to come here. And they emphasized that at the end of Title 42. And the numbers fell off dramatically in May, just when everybody thought that the numbers would go up dramatically. Uh, my uh, take on this whole thing, and I learned this lesson when I was in office managing this problem myself, is that illegal immigration reacts sharply and quickly to information about perceived changes in our enforcement policy here. But, and here's the, the big but, so long as the underlying push factors persist in places like Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras, Haiti, Cuba, 
the numbers are going to always revert back to their longer term trend line. So the numbers are now up again. There was something mm-hmm. like 177,000 crossings in in July. I've heard something like 140,000 and so far in September. And so we need to address the underlying push factors. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be banging our heads against the wall, administration after administration after administration. They're going to keep coming, and there's no level of defense or wall or barbed wire that will prevent that, unfortunately. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because what we've heard from the Department of Homeland Security, obviously, which you used to run, is that in the next three months, 800 additional troops are going to be there helping National Guard members with things like ground-based detection, data entry, transportation, but not enforcement itself. I mean, is that enough? Correct. The U.S. military uh, in this country does not engage in domestic law enforcement. The most they can do is support the Border Patrol, support the Department of Homeland Security in its frontline border uh, security mission. So given the numbers that we face, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough. We're going to have to deal with the underlying factors There are aspects of our immigration policy that do serve as magnets. Uh, The wait time for an asylum claim, for example, uh, is contributing to this this problem. And I don't see this problem going away anytime soon as long as there is this political polarization in Washington that prevents addressing the longer-term problem. There are solutions to this problem, Caitlin, but they are politically unobtainable as long as the, the, the factions in Washington are so deeply divided about this issue. Yeah, I mean, House Republicans aren't even passing spending bills, much less coalescing on, on immigration. And, you know, one of the places that we're seeing this play out is right here in New York City. There is a feud with the yep. governor, with the city's mayor, with the White House. They are all kind of pointing yep. the finger at each other. I know you met with Mayor Adams on Monday. Did you give him any advice? I did meet with Mayor Adams on Monday. Um, He sees a very big problem in his midst. The largest, most powerful city in the country cannot absorb 100,000 new people in its population in in eight months. It is blowing a big hole, a billion-dollar hole in his budget. He needs the help of the federal government. You know, we at the federal level like to say that immigration law and policy is primarily the role of the federal government. That is true. The federal government, therefore, has, in my view, an obligation to help cities and communities in the interior deal with this problem once these migrants have crossed the border and are here. So what should they be doing differently? What does the administration need to do to help New York and other cities that are dealing with this? Well, DHS announced uh, just in the last 24 hours or so that it is granting temporary protected status for Venezuelans mm-hmm. that will help them get work authorizations quicker, put them to work, contribute to the tax base. But more broadly, uh, places like New York, L.A., Chicago need money. They need resources to provide shelter, uh, to help them out, to absorb this. Uh, New York City is facing a major, major budget deficit because of this crisis uh, where they need to fund other things like public safety. And so my hope is that the federal government will step up and help these cities that are absorbing this problem in the interior of our nation. Yeah, we'll see if that changes. I know the city officials are deeply concerned about it. Former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. Thank you. 
And you saw Champions for Change. It was a series playing out here all week on CNN. It is time to meet another one. My colleague, Christian Amanpour, is going to introduce us to an incredible Afghan journalist who was forced to flee her own home as the Taliban returned to power two years ago. But that means she has not stopped fighting on behalf of women in her country. This week, in a series called Champions for Change, we are bringing you stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Tonight, CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, introduces us to an Afghan journalist forced to flee her country after the Taliban's return to power two years ago. Now she is working in exile to highlight the stories and the resilience of Afghan women. Zahra has been running absolutely everything. She's quiet and very modest and humble, but you can see the fire there. My colleagues and other uh, independent journalists, they are taking a high risk. Zara Joya is dedicated to telling the stories of Afghan women. In fact, she started Rukshana, the very first website that was for women and by women. Only the way her journalists work now is dramatically different since the Taliban's return. Afghanistan is not safe for, for a moment and for journalists. I've been covering Afghanistan since before 9-11, when the Taliban was first in charge. For five years, the religious police issued a series of edicts against women, banning them from wearing makeup, from wearing high heels, banning them from work, from education. But their restrictions and their draconian crackdowns on women now are just as bad, perhaps worse, than they were two decades ago. Afghan women are afraid that this is the beginning of your efforts to erase them from the workspace. You have a long experience of defying the Taliban. You were in Afghanistan the first time they came. Yes. How did you get around their bans on girls' education? So I, I wear boy clothes. Boys' clothes? Yes boys' clothes, and I, I went with my two uncles to school. I lived in a remote village in Bamiyan provinces, two hours going to school and back. It was so important to you, even as a young kid, that you were willing to take on that hardship. Exactly. Education changed my life. All of uh, the people who are interviewing with us and my colleagues, all of them are um, anonymous. anonymous because of their safety. We can't guarantee the safety of our journalists. What would happen if they were caught? What is the punishment? If the Taliban arrest them, I'm, I'm sure they will be tortured and prisons and maybe they will be killed. Are they scared? Of course. And yet they keep doing it. They are very brave. Zara told me the story of a mother who was living in such desperate poverty, she was ready to sell one of her children in order to have the others survive. We finally published this story. Our audience, they came to us and reached out to us and said, we want to support and help this mother. That's, that's really powerful. Very traditional Afghan food. 
Zara had to flee Kabul when the Taliban took over in 2021, and she's ended up here in London trying to form a new community, but still dedicated to driving positive change in her home country. That exchange of uplifting stories as well as sad stories, at least that is happening. So even if you're somewhere in Afghanistan where there's absolutely zero access to education, you still will be able to read Rukhshana Media um, and still get a sense of what your, your sisters are going through. Do you ever hope, believe that you'll be able to return home? I really wish. Um, I really miss my country. She's got this really um, almost infectious ambition and drive. <laughs> She's so strong, she's so committed to what she believes in. Such a special story, and to see her still doing her work. You can tune in on Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern. The entire Champions for Change one-hour special will air right here on CNN. In the meantime, Hollywood has been on its, heel for, its heels for months. Writers and producers on strike. Some of your favorite TV shows off of air but tonight, an agreement may finally be near. We have an update next. There are some major meetings today that might be good news for your favorite TV shows. The Writers Guild and top studio bosses sat down for talks to potentially end their strike. Today's negotiations included the CEOs of Netflix, Disney, and Warner Brothers. Discovery, which of course is the parent company here at CNN, it is a second straight day of sit-down meetings to end the walkout, and a source told CNN that both sides left that meeting feeling encouraged. Any deal, of course, would still need to be ratified by the actual union members, and then the major studios could turn their attention to the Actors Union, which is also still on strike tonight. Even an agreement with just the Writers Guild, though, could mean the return of some talk shows. We've seen that in the news this week, not just daytime, but also late night. We'll see how that goes. We will keep you updated. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.